Well, good morning, guys. Mornings like today, where it's like a third of the church is sick and a lot of crazy stuff is happening, are good for us from time to time because they remind us of our weakness and frailty. And as several of us have talked about this morning, it reminds us that we are not the ones that pull anything off that means anything at all. And so God is faithful to show up on days where we feel maybe at our weakest and he comes and ministers to us in ways that are good. So we trust that he's going to do that again today. Let's go to him and ask him now to be with us as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you as we always acknowledge, not in a position of strength, but in a position of weakness and need. And so we do pray that you would show yourself to be faithful to us yet again. We know that you are always faithful. You're always good and merciful toward your people. We know that you never change. And so we pray that you would be our rock today, that you would come by your spirit, that you would be our teacher as we look to your word. None of us in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own wisdom would understand your word and would understand things that are ultimately true. And so we pray that you would help us today. We pray that you would show us yourself from scripture, that you would show us ourselves, that you would show us what's good for us and what isn't good and that you would show us Christ above all, and that we would trust him. We pray that you would sustain our faith in him and that you would continue to conform us into his image. We ask all of these things because they're good for us, but they honor you as well. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, friends, we are back in the book of Proverbs this morning. Uh, We'll be looking at Proverbs chapter two together here in just a few minutes. I want to remind all of us, just as, because we began this series last week, I want to remind all of us of a few things about Proverbs. Proverbs is a, a book that would be relatively well known to many. It's right next to the Psalms in the Old Testament. A lot of times, though, the Proverbs are sort of sold short when it comes to their value and even their place in Scripture. Because many times we talk about them as though they are merely just a bunch of practical wisdom, a bunch of sayings that can be helpful, a bunch of tips for living, maybe pointing out what's wise and what's foolish, maybe what's not so good and what's better for our lives. But as we considered last week and will continue to as we look to the Proverbs, they are a lot more than just practical wisdom. From the perspective of redemptive history, they were written during the era of the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David. So we know that the law of Moses is still the law over God's people. And we know that God has promised to King David a son who would come from him, who would reign forever on the throne of righteousness over God's people. And so it is in that time frame of redemptive history that the Proverbs were written by Solomon, primarily David's son. This same man, Solomon, as we considered last week, also wrote another book in scripture called Ecclesiastes. And it's important for us to hold Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together. Ecclesiastes, some may know, is a book about life under the sun in a fallen world. It's breathtaking in its honesty. It's sometimes unsettling even for us as we read it. But Solomon in that book talks about the way things are because of sin and because of wreckage that exists in this world. We all know what it's like to toil under the sun, and to experience hardship and suffering of various kinds. Well, in the Proverbs, Solomon is giving us wisdom, things that are true. He's telling us what is good and right, what is worthy of pursuit. 
And it's good that we remember that Proverbs will do many things for us, but there are a few things that it will not do. We thought about some of this last week, but it bears repeating. Proverbs will not deliver us from the fallenness of the world. We have to remember that as we look to Proverbs for wisdom and godliness. Proverbs will not guarantee us good circumstances. We could abide by proverbial wisdom and still have difficult circumstances because of the fact that we live in a fallen world. Proverbs will not deliver us from all kinds of suffering, though it will deliver us from unnecessary suffering. Proverbs will not keep us from the toil that characterizes this fallen world. We will still toil. It will not keep us from ever knowing heartbreak. I trust most in the room have known that. You might be experiencing it right now. Proverbs will not keep us from sorrow and pain altogether. We are told in Scripture that suffering will come as a result of living in this world. Proverbs will not keep us from groaning like the rest of creation as we await our resurrection. This is Romans 8. The entire creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. Proverbs will not deliver us from the struggle and the fight against sin. So if we think, okay, if, if we apply Proverbs correctly, then I will know relative ease when it comes to my battle against sin. That is not necessarily true. Proverbs will not deliver us from weakness. We will still be weak, not strong in and of ourselves. Proverbs will not guarantee us just clean, linear, constant progression. Sometimes it's going to look like this. And Proverbs will not guarantee us that things will never fall apart in our lives. Because it could. But Proverbs will teach us the difference between wisdom and foolishness, which matters for our lives. Proverbs will teach us the difference between righteousness and evil, which matters for our lives. Proverbs will teach us what pleases God and also, conversely, what he hates. Proverbs will teach us what is good for us and then, conversely, what will destroy it will teach us how to be all kinds of good for our neighbor. It will teach us how to live with one another in such a way that we would be useful to our brothers and sisters. Proverbs might even be used in many of our lives as a tool of God's loving discipline. So there are going to be things that we consider, especially for all of us, when we get into the chapters that are coming on sexual sin. Everybody in the room is going to be nailed by that. I mean, is going to be indicted by that. It's going to be hard. It's going to sting. It's going to accuse us rightly. God's word will. But we remember that when things sting us from God's word, it is always being used by our loving Heavenly Father in order to continue to do His good work in us. And Proverbs, ultimately, if we understand them rightly, the Proverbs will show us Christ and drive us to him constantly. So just a couple of practical notes before we get into the text today. You probably see this if you've read your bulletin. I'm preaching the first nine chapters of Proverbs in this series that we're going through right now. It's because they lend themselves best to this kind of expositional preaching. But it's also good for us to remember that major themes, especially in chapters 10 through 31, there are major themes that kind of cycle over and over and over in the book of Proverbs. And we're going to be able to consider those major themes together as we make our way through the first nine chapters. 
And I hope that what we're going to be able to do is reflect and meditate quite a bit. The truths are very simple. They're very straightforward. So what we then get to do is unpack them together and sort of steep in them together. So I hope that we're going to get to do that today and throughout the rest of this series, and we trust it will be profitable for us. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them to Proverbs 2. And if you don't have a Bible today, don't worry about it. We will have the words, the verses to Proverbs 2 printed up here on the screen for you so that you can follow along with me. Before we go any further, I'm going to read the text for us, and then we're going to consider it together. So beginning in Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 1, this is the Word of God. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So here's my, my plan today. It's a little different, I suppose. This passage is very straightforward. I want to survey it and outline it for us. There are going to be four main points to that outline, just for us to understand the text together and just observe some simple things about it. Then what I want to do is take those four major points and kind of condense them into three extended meditations that we can unpack and consider together. So I'm going to try to make that clear to you as we make our way through the rest of our time. So first we'll begin with the passage, point one of the outline in one sense of Proverbs 2. If We're going to understand it together. Number one it is good to seek wisdom. It is good to seek wisdom. We're going to look at verses one to five. We're just going to observe them together. Solomon, again, is writing, beginning in verse one here, to his son, his proverbial son. And he says to him, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments, if you make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding, verse three, yes, if you call out for insight, and you raise your voice for understanding. Verse four, if you seek understanding like silver or you search for it as for hidden treasure, as something of great value. Then verse five, you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. It's an exhortation, an encouragement from Solomon to his son, seek after wisdom. In particular, seek after wisdom that comes from 
God that is grounded in the fear of the Lord. Second big point of the outline here. Number two, the Lord gives wisdom and watches over his saints, verses six to eight. The Lord gives wisdom and watches over his saints. This is verses six through eight. So Solomon's exhortation to his son is grounded in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Put your eyes on verse six. Four, son, seek wisdom, pursue these things. You will come to know God this way because the Lord gives wisdom. He's faithful. He's good. This is what he does. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, meaning from his word, right? From his word come knowledge and understanding. The Lord stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He gives wisdom to the righteous. He also, we see, verse 7, is a shield to those who walk in integrity. He is a shield to the upright. He guards the paths of justice. And then this, he watches over the way of his saints. This is who he is. Son, pursue wisdom. You will come to know God in pursuing wisdom because this is who the Lord is, faithful and good, always true. He watches over his own. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Third major point of the outline. Number three, wisdom provides protection. Wisdom provides protection. We're going to look at verses 9 to 19. So once Solomon's son has gained this wisdom, at least in measure, there's a result of that. This will produce something. Beginning in verse 9, we see this. At this point, Solomon's son will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. He will know these things. And then in verses 10 and 11, we see that this is because wisdom will have come into his heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to his soul. We see that discretion will watch over him and understanding will guard him. And then having this wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and discretion, Solomon's son will be protected, verses 12 to 15, from the way of evil, from evil men. We see that. Delivering you from the way of evil. Delivering you from men of perverted speech. Delivering you from men who forsake the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. But having this wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and discretion will also protect Solomon's son from sexual sin, verses 16 to 19. So we see here, whenever we see this, the language of the adulteress used in Proverbs, it's useful for us to understand that this is a two-way street that's being presented here. Solomon is talking to his son, right? If he were talking to his daughter, we would presume that he would rightly be talking about a male that she might engage in sexual relations with, right? So when we see this language, we ought not see it as some sort of weird, one-sided conversation. It's speaking to men and women in this way. So he says, if having this wisdom, this understanding, this discretion, this knowledge, you will be protected, delivered from the forbidden woman, or insert there, the forbidden man in that sense, from the adulteress or the adulterer and his or her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Sexual sin leads to destruction, verses 18 and 19. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed and none who go to her come back. 
nor do they regain the paths of life. So this, this is common, guys, in Proverbs. And I think what we're going to see together is that sex is the undefeated champion of the world. Seriously. Sex is the undefeated champion of the world in that there is not a human being who put in the right set of circumstances with respect to sexual temptation who will not fall. There is something unique about this kind of temptation and this kind of situation that exposes our sin and our frailty and our weakness, unlike almost any other thing. We're going to think about that together in several chapters. We won't labor it today. Nobody gets into the ring with sex and wins at the end of the day. We'll continue thinking about that in just a few weeks. But Solomon is saying that this wisdom that comes from God will guard his son even from this. Point number four, major point number four of the outline, is that the upright will inhabit the land. Very simple. The upright will inhabit the land. Verse 20 to 22. So you will walk, given all this, you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. Four. Why does this matter? Because it is the upright who will inhabit the land and those of integrity who will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So now we're going to shift into meditating on all this together. We're going to unpack it together. These four truths condensed into three meditations. Just a brief note before I even begin this portion of the sermon. This text, like if you were to read that chapter, I trust you would come to the same conclusion as me. This text is not a text about how to get wisdom. It's nowhere in there. Here's how you get wisdom. Other than to simply say, seek God, pray, pursue wisdom. That's the exhortation. So it's not a how-to chapter. What Solomon is doing in talking to his son and writing to his son is writing to him about the value of wisdom. He's writing to him about how good wisdom is. He talks to him about the fruit that wisdom will bear in his life. And then he writes to him about the faithfulness of God to give wisdom to his people. Right? So that's the major emphasis. Pursue it. It's good for you. It's valuable. And God is faithful to give it. That's, in one sense, a summary of Proverbs 2. We're going to think together under three headings. So number one, we're going to think together regarding the upright inhabiting the land. So we're almost going to kind of reverse the order of the chapter and work backwards through it as we think together. So regarding the upright inhabiting the land, we're thinking about verses 20 to 22. So big picture, biblically speaking, from the perspective of redemptive history, whenever you see that kind of language, the upright will inhabit the land. The righteous will inhabit the land. We should think Ultimately, what that's talking about is that the righteous will dwell with God in the new heavens and the new earth. The righteous will dwell with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the point of Scripture. It's the end goal of everything. God creates man in the garden. They have a land. They have a paradise. It's awesome and perfect. Sin wrecks it. They're expelled from it. God then, through Abraham, promises God's people a land. He gives it to them in Canaan. Then, because of their sin, they are yet again driven out of it. And God promises, I'm going to bring you back from exile, and I'm going to give you a land forever. Well, that land he's going to give forever is going to be accomplished through Jesus, and it's going to be the entire earth, the new heavens and the new earth, 
where we will live with God forever. So whenever we see that, the upright will inhabit the land. That's ultimately where our minds should go. So remember that we are in this era of redemptive history after King David. The promise has been made to David. One of your sons is going to reign forever on a throne of righteousness. He'll have perfect dominion for all time. So in this era in which Proverbs is written, God's people would have been anticipating the coming of Messiah through whom all of the promises of God would be realized. So as we're thinking about the upright inhabiting the land and the wicked being cut off from the land, huge thing for us to understand. There is no righteousness and there is no wisdom as Proverbs portrays it apart from Jesus. There is no righteousness and there is no wisdom as Proverbs portrays it apart from Jesus. Isaiah 53, 11. You can make note of this verse. Isaiah 53, 11 reads this way, of the suffering servant of the Lord. Of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. But then these words, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I'm not sure if you've seen that before, Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge, Proverbs is about knowledge. Proverbs is about understanding. Proverbs is about wisdom. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The righteous will inhabit the land, right? Iniquity is born and atoned for by the wise one, the righteous one, the one who possesses knowledge, the one who would come. The reality is that Jesus has taken all of our sins and he'll never give them back. They've been paid for forever. They've been atoned for forever. There is really forgiveness in Jesus' name. Righteousness also, though, through the knowledge of Messiah and through His righteousness, righteousness would be provided to the the people of God that they might dwell with God forever. So in these senses, friends, whenever we see this language of knowledge and wisdom and discretion and understanding, we should remember that Jesus is wisdom exemplified. Jesus is wisdom exemplified. And Jesus is wisdom fulfilled. So when Christ came and lived a human life, a truly human life on this planet for 33 years, he lived a life of perfect wisdom, a life of perfect knowledge, a life of perfect discretion, a life of perfect understanding. And through his knowledge, his righteousness, the many, that's us, are accounted righteous. The righteous will inhabit the land. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Write those verses down. Sorry we don't have them on the screen for you. We were having some technical problems before the service. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 reads this way. About the coming Christ. David's son. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. 
the Lord is our righteousness. I mean, this, this verse, these verses are astonishing. Like in thinking about our themes in Proverbs, wisdom, waiting on a son of David, the upright will inhabit the land. There is one coming in the midst of Israel's sin. Jeremiah, the early chapters of Jeremiah is all about Israel's sin. It's all about their unfaithfulness to God and the fact that their sin is going to result in exile and banishment and judgment and all these things. And in the midst of that, God makes these kinds of promises. The days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, capital B. And he will reign as king and he'll deal wisely. He's wise. He shall execute justice. There's that word again. He'll execute righteousness in the land. In his day, God's people will be saved and they will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The righteous branch, of course, is Jesus. He will reign and deal wisely. We keep seeing his wisdom. There will be justice and righteousness in the land because of him. In Jesus, God's people will be saved and will be safe. And then he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. I mean, you can't make this up. It's right here. Like when we talk all the time about Christ being our righteousness, God has told us in his word hundreds of years before Jesus ever came that this is how he would be known. So in other words, friends, brothers and sisters, if we want to dwell in the land with God forever, that will happen through Christ and through Christ alone. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge like we considered last week. And trusting Christ is the beginning of wisdom. To look outside of oneself, to look away from ourselves and our own notions of our own goodness, our own notions of our own righteousness, to acknowledge that we do not measure up, we don't meet God's standard, to realize that He is holy and we are not, this is the beginning of knowledge. To look outside of ourselves to save what's wrong in us, is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. To cast ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ is the beginning of wisdom. Second piece of meditation for us is regarding the Lord giving wisdom and watching over His saints and wisdom providing protection. So it's verses 6 to 19 is what we're going to meditate on together. The fact that God gives wisdom that he watches over his people, and that wisdom protects us. What can we say to these things? The first thing is that, straightforwardly, God is the one who gives wisdom. We don't have it naturally. He gives it. We can learn stuff that's valuable. So it's not as though there's nothing valuable in the world. That would be crazy to say. But as it pertains to this kind of wisdom, the Lord is the one who gives it. We don't have it naturally. We thought about how faith in Christ and repentance, this change of mind from what we currently or were thinking about ourselves and God and salvation in Christ, that change of mind to God is holy and I'm not. That change of mind to like I'm ruined before God. I'm bankrupt. I don't have a chance. The change of mind to seeing Jesus for who he is 
He's atoned for my sin. He's provided my righteousness. Those things we do not do for ourselves. God grants that kind of wisdom. God, by His Spirit, does the work even of transformation once we have trusted Christ. So one pivotal question to ask ourselves when it comes to our growth in the faith and our growth in Christ is this. Can you, can I, can we change our own hearts? Answer that question is most certainly not. We can't. Can you, can I, can we renew our own minds like in a Romans 12 kind of way? The answer to that question is most certainly no. God is the one who does those things. He is the one who gives wisdom. He is the one who does the work of transformation. But next we can see from the text that God is a shield for His people. He's a shield for us. It's a great image. He's a protector of His people. He watches over the way of His saints. So this doesn't mean that our circumstances will always be good. This is an eternal promise that God watches over us so that we will never be lost. He is the one who holds us fast. And we know that Jesus has promised us that He will lose none of all the Father has given Him, but He'll raise us up on the last day. And He's promised us that no one can pluck us from His hands. He prays for us that the Father would keep us. And the Father always hears the prayers of His Son. And so this is important for us in our lives because as we think about even the course of our own lives, there could be a number of different seasons of your life. There have been a number of ebbs and flows in your life even as it pertains to trusting Christ and following Him. Many in the room will have known seasons of time where you're like, you know, I don't know that I was that mindful of the things of God. I don't know that I was that fired up about the things of God. I'm not quite sure what to make of that season of my life. The good news is that even should such a season come upon you again, God is faithful to watch over His saints. Even when we stray, which we do, sometimes really badly for a really long time, the Lord is always working to humble us, to show us our need for Him, and to ultimately bring us back. That's how He does with His people. The London Baptist Confession that we use often in our services has a paragraph that reads this way. It's excellent. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows His children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence upon Him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of his elect happens by his appointment for his glory and for their good. It's good stuff. There may be times in our lives because of our sin and frankly our stupidity where we do things that are wicked and we might even find ourselves remaining in sin for seasons. May it never be. But we can trust the Lord that He watches over us and that even when we do our best to wreck it, He keeps us in the fold. He brings us back. He will lose none of His people. 
This is a great comfort to us to know that in spite of my straying and my sinning and my wrestling and my doubting, that Christ has me and he will never lose me. And that even, so this is why, like when we find brothers and sisters in periods of sin that are maybe severe and extended in terms of their duration, we continue to pray. We continue to plead. We continue to talk because this is how God works. He keeps his people. We also see in Proverbs that wisdom, knowledge, and understanding comes from the mouth of God. It comes from the mouth of God. So that means that wisdom, knowledge, and understanding comes from the word of God. Psalm 19, 7-9 reads this way, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, making wise the foolish. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's word, the wisdom that comes from God's word, protects us from evil. Thinking about Solomon's son, how Solomon tells him, when you understand wisdom and righteousness and justice and equity, when you understand what's really good, when you have been taught of God, you will be protected from evil. How so? Well, consider God's law and its uses. We talk about this stuff pretty regularly here, how the first use of God's law is to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. But think about the second use of the law. That is to restrain our corruption. God's law restrains our corruption in that it forbids sin. It's very straightforward. It forbids sin. Even though we are free as Christians from the curse of the law, the punishments that are threatened by the law for breaking it show us what sin deserves. It also, the punishments that are threatened by God for breaking his law, also shows us what we can expect in life as a consequence of sin. Nothing good comes from it. It works to correct and to restrain our corruption. And then even though we're not under the law as a covenant of works, there are promises in the law for keeping it. And we look at those and we say, okay, God approves of obedience. God's law tells us of the blessings that we can expect from abiding by the law. The law, in other words, brothers and sisters, encourages good and it discourages evil. So in our text today, there are clear implications. The way of evil and evil men, the way of perversity and all these things. Last week, thinking about harming others for dishonest gain, all of that. Those things lead to destruction. We've already thought about how sexual sin ruins people and leads to devastation. It curbs our corruption and restrains it. The third use of God's law, though, is for the perfect guide for the life of the Christian. So God's law for us, brothers and sisters, is a rule of life. It shows us what is God's will and our duty. That's how the confessions read through history. It directs us to live according to its precepts. And then in considering, like as a a believer, and you think about how do I interact with God's law in a way that it's good for my life? 
you interact with it this way. You consider what Christ has done for you. You contemplate your need for him, right? And then we are moved toward greater thankfulness, greater love, and greater care in conforming our lives to the law as a rule of life. That's how it works. I'm contemplating Christ and what he's done for me. I realize that he has done for me what I could never do for myself. That apart from any work of mine, any effort of mine, all by faith in him, I am safe and I am reconciled to God. I'm counted righteous even though I'm a wretch. And that gratitude toward what to God for what he has done for me leads me toward greater care in conforming my life to the law of God. Because he says it's good for me. And I know he loves me. He loves me so much that he gave his son for me. He says it's good for me. I'm going to pursue that. He says that will wreck my life. I'm not going to go there. We exercise great care in conforming our lives to the law as a rule of life. So the takeaway, quite simply, friends, when it comes to all of this, is look to Christ and what he has done for you and contemplate your need of him often. You want to know what will drive me? What will drive you in the Christian life is that. Think of Christ and what he has done for you and contemplate your need of him all the time and then take great care to conform your life to the law of God as a guide for your life. If God says it's good, pursue it. If God says it's evil and it will destroy you, run away. We're going to see that wisdom so often, friends, when it comes to sin and temptation, wisdom is often just don't go there. Really. Because any person under the right set of temptation and circumstances and everything else will fall. Wisdom says don't go there where your life will be wrecked. Third piece of meditation for us today. This is our final point. Number three, we're going to think together about it being good to seek wisdom. So verses one to five, we're going to think about it being good to seek wisdom. So you'll be thinking, maybe some in the room, we're going to be thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter one, where Paul says that Greeks seek wisdom, and that's a bad thing. He does say that, right? He says, he talks about Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, right? Both of those being negative things. So this is not that. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is pointing out the foolishness of seeking wisdom outside of Christ and him crucified. Right? That's why we started with meditation 1. The righteous will dwell in the land, meaning those who are in Christ will live with God forever. That's why we started there. But now we're going to consider that it is good to seek wisdom. It's valuable. To seek wisdom in Christ is good. So I was having a conversation with a guy in the church this week, and we were considering some of this stuff together about, like we always say, the Christian life, it's unfathomably deep sometimes, but it's not complicated. It's really not. It's pretty simple. One thing that we could say about us here at CBC, I trust, I can speak for all of us in this, is that we're trying to do good things here. We're trying to do good things here. And we're trying to not do bad stuff. It's really not complicated. We're trying to do good, and we're trying to avoid wickedness. But you say that, and it's almost like, 
well, no, no kidding, brother. I mean, it's like, you know, what are we paying you for? Like, that's not, it's not hard to figure out. But sometimes when we talk about the Christian life, we so complicate it and codify it so that you don't know whether to make up or down of, of much at all. It's very simple to say, like we read in Romans today, hold fast to what is good and abhor what is evil. It's so simple and so true and so helpful. So we're trying to do good stuff here. And we're trying to not do bad things here. That could be a part of our, I don't know, probably won't be a part of the branding or the mission statement, but it's true. Real wisdom, brothers and sisters, drives us toward the good and keeps us from the bad. That's true all the time. Real wisdom drives us toward the good and keeps us from the bad. All right, so as far as living our lives together in pursuit of wisdom, what does that look like? Well, we seek wisdom in Christ by faith in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. I say all this on purpose. We seek wisdom in Christ, not apart from him, in him, by faith, not our works or effort, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, not our own ability to change ourselves. Galatians 3.3, Paul says to the Galatian Christians, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Answered no. You began by the Spirit, you'll be perfected by the Spirit. So quite simply, we trust Christ, we rely upon the Holy Spirit, we look to God's Word as the only infallible, wise guide for our lives. And in particular, we do that in the context of the church. That's how we live. So, I'm sure you've thought about this too, because you're intelligent people in the room. The New Testament letters, they're, they're all written to congregations. They're all written to churches. Even the pastoral epistles are written to pastors in view of churches. Right? So, none of these letters are just kind of written, you know, off the individual someplace, save maybe Philemon, but there's even a church in his house, right? So, there are churches in view. The corporate nature of the New Testament is undeniable. It's only in a hyper-individualized context like we live in that we would ever think that the New Testament is just written towards a bunch of individuals scattered all over the place. It's written to groups of believers called churches. The church is God's plan for us. It's not man's idea. So we trust Christ, we rely upon the Spirit, we look to God's Word together. This is God's design for us. So if you want to grow in wisdom, you want to pursue wisdom, keep showing up. We gather to sit under God's Word together, right? We do it every week. Not just during the preaching time, but when it's read over us. The scriptural call to worship is read over us and draws us all to praise God and worship Him. We read large portions of God's Word every week. And we sit under the preaching of God's Word. We gather to sit under God's Word and to receive Christ in the Word together. We gather every week to come to the Lord's table to receive Christ in the table together. To participate together in the body and blood of Christ. To break this bread and drink of this cup together. We come every week to pray to the Father in Jesus' name together. We come every week to sing of Christ together. 
singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. So every week when you show up here, you are seeking wisdom. I don't know if you thought about that. Every week when you show up here, and this is not unique to CBC, this is any church that preaches the gospel and rightly administers the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's table. When you show up every week, you are seeking wisdom according to God's word. You're seeking it in Christ by faith according to scripture. So keep showing up. And then even thinking about the church in our lives, about the fact that if we're going to grow in wisdom, we need the church. Outside of the gathering itself, we need each other. We encourage one another. We comfort one another. We counsel one another. We correct one another. We do all kinds of those things just in relationship with each other. We grow, in other words, brothers and sisters, we grow in wisdom together. You really won't grow in wisdom very much by yourself at all. I mean, you might in some small ways. But significant growth in wisdom happens corporately, gathering with the saints, living life in the context of the church, experiencing the fellowship of the saints in an ongoing way. We grow in wisdom, we grow in grace, we grow in knowledge together. Sort of as a closing thought for us, this is a great comfort to us, that we will not seek wisdom in vain because God is faithful and good. Solomon, in writing to his son, is telling him, seek after wisdom fervently. Seek after it diligently. Seek after it like you would search for treasure even. So pursue it. Pursue it hard. But then he grounds all of that. He tells him that your efforts, your pursuit, it's not going to be wasted. Because, I mean, that's the way his logic works in verses 1 through 5. If you seek after these things, verse 5, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord, which we've talked about the fear of the Lord being a big deal. I know who he is and I know what he requires and I know that I can't do it and that Christ has done it and I'm trusting Christ and I'm living my life according to God's word. That's the fear of the Lord. So Solomon just tells his son, this is going to happen for you. If you seek these things, it's going to happen. It's because God is faithful and good. Our labor in Christ is not in vain. We thought about this in 1 Corinthians just a few weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we know that our labor in Christ is not in vain because God has promised us eternally that all will be well. And then we are reminded in God's word that God will answer our prayers. Ron referenced James 1 earlier today that if we lack wisdom, we are to ask God for it. So quite simply, an application and a takeaway from today, Proverbs 2, in seeking wisdom, pray for it. Ask the Lord for it. Pray that he would give you wisdom and perspective in the various things that you encounter in your life. We ask him for wisdom and he is faithful to give it. In the words of Christ, he reminds us that our heavenly father is a loving and good God and that he delights to give good gifts to his children. You remember in the Gospels when Jesus will say, if you who are wicked and corrupt know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so your Father in heaven? If you ask him for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. 
If you ask him for fish, he's not going to give you a snake. This is what Christ tells us and reminds us of this. That our heavenly father is the father of lights, right? He is the giver of all good gifts. He is completely good. There is no darkness in him at all. He never changes. He's always faithful. He is faithful to us even when we are faithless because he will not deny himself. Even in times of sorrow, we know that God spends our sorrows well. He doesn't waste them. We know that God will not withhold things that we need. We know that in Christ, the Father will graciously give us all things and that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. And even if our circumstances aren't good, even if they're terrible, we know that God does work all things for our everlasting good. So in our pursuit of wisdom, there is no need for fear. We can all be cynical. Understandably so. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. Am I going to waste my time in pursuing wisdom according to Scripture? Answer to that is no. Not because of you. Not because you're going to pursue it just the right way all the time. Not because you're going to hit every button right. But because God is good and faithful to you. Pursue wisdom. Entrusting the Lord. At the end of the day, in our pursuit of wisdom or our living of the Christian life, it's good to remind ourselves regularly of where our comfort comes from. Regardless of what your Sunday has been like up to now or what your Monday looks like tomorrow, remember these words from the Heidelberg Catechism about our only comfort in life and death. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins, not just most of them, all of them, and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Thanks be to God. Pursue wisdom. Trust Christ. God is good. He's faithful. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We praise you for your faithfulness because we are anything but that so often. It's a comfort to us to know that you'll grow us in wisdom because you're the one who's going to do that. So we pray that you would continue to teach us, continue to transform us, and Make us more like Christ. Continue to give us the mind of Christ. Continue to renew our minds according to your word. We pray that you would continue to sustain our trust in your son. That when we see things in your word, that the righteous will inhabit the land, that immediately we think that will be me because of Christ and Christ alone. We pray that as we come to the Lord's table now, that you would continue to do your good work in us, that you would be knitting our hearts together as a church in love for one another and that you would be stirring our love for you. Fill us with gratitude as we contemplate what Jesus has done for us and then cause us, even, even as we come to the table in faith, cause us to then use greater care in our lives to conform ourselves to your word. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.